In some forms of Christian art, the raspberry is the symbol for kindness. The red juice is thought to be the blood of the heart, where kindness originates. In some cultures, the raspberry symbolizes a strong, happy marriage. This is because, in the first year of growth, the raspberry bush bears no fruit, instead putting its energy into developing hardy roots for the years of growth to come. The raspberry can mean forgiveness, sympathy, taking responsibility for one's own actions, benevolence, generosity, helpfulness, and the ability to turn the other cheek and let go of old wounds. But raspberries also have a different energy, perhaps a more powerful one. In some places, raspberries are used to deter evil spirits. One tribe in the Philippines is known to hang them outside their doors to keep away the unwelcome. And in Germany, they used to tie raspberry stalks to calm horses thought to be bewitched. I doubt Sharon knew about any of this as she took a long walk down Whirlwind Hill Road after Doreen was gone during raspberry season. In Connecticut, that particular time runs from August 1st to September 30th, Doreen's birthday. That year, Doreen was gone before the raspberries came. Sharon found herself alone, away for a moment from Mark's gaze and what must have been the constant demands of two small children, and walked down the sloping hill. She found herself at Jimmy Piscotti's raspberry bushes at the low stone wall where he'd heard a commotion from the farmhouse at 1316 back in June. Finding the raspberries on Jimmy Piscotti's bush, Sharon began to help herself. Jimmy's wife, angry at the intruder, tried to shoo her away from the porch. She told Sharon those weren't hers. She needed to stop helping herself. But Sharon just shrugged. She just kept right on eating. I think about this story a lot. When I see Sharon stealing raspberries at Jimmy Piscotti's stone wall, I can't help but remember how she left Doreen alone in her bedroom with Mark to be beaten, or how she faithfully washed Doreen's sheets and hid away her comforter. I think of her not calling the police, but a friend for prayer and then telling Donna when Donna called that Doreen was out. I think of her standing firm with her husband, faithfully repeating his story about a door standing open in the middle of a desolate farmyard, or a gun needed to keep away woodchucks and ghosts, like the lady in white. And I wonder what she did know. In 2001, Thomas Hanley, formerly a detective on Doreen's case and now the chief of police in Middlebury, Vermont, spoke to Jason Barry of the Record Journal. Hanley told Barry that Sharon definitely knew something about what had happened to her stepdaughter, but that she kept quiet, out of allegiance to Mark. She knows a lot more than she's willing to divulge. Period. The end, he said. Even though she didn't live with him, she would say certain things. She would make certain admissions, but wouldn't cross the line. I think about Sharon crossing the line a lot. She did come close to the edge just once. She caught Donna in Mark's gun trial in 1991, and took the time to whisper something. If you ever get Doreen back, Sharon told Donna, don't let her go with Mark, ever again. That conversation was over as quickly as it started and Sharon was gone. I think about moments like this and I wanna hate Sharon. And I know a lot of people want to hate Sharon too. I should know this story by now. In April, 1988, when my schoolmate Emily was stabbed to death by her father, I was not yet 10. It was a Friday, two weeks past Easter. I'd gotten off the bus and let myself in the house. I remember it was raining when my mother called me from work to tell me to not turn on the TV and not to call my friends. These days, Google could have gotten me the news in a heartbeat had I known what I was looking for. But back then, the phone was bolted to the wall and you had to run your finger around that big awkward dial. And I, like the good latchkey kid that I was, had probably made myself a snack I wanted to attend to. 
It was Friday afternoon, and I had the house to myself. Who wants to go looking for bad news? But inevitably, the bad news found me on the nightly news. I remember shots of our little Catholic school, old Easter flowers assembled from construction paper blanching and curling in the windows. Shots of cops parked in front of a house that I have blanked from my memory. At the funeral, which overflowed with people, I will never forget the words of our priest. He told us we shouldn't mourn for Emily because she was with God in heaven. Instead, he said, we should pray for her family, for the people she left behind. Staring at a tiny white casket heaped with flowers, holding a little girl dressed for a first communion she would never receive, I was dumbstruck. Emily had been murdered in her own kitchen by a man she trusted more than any other to love her and to keep her safe. When the girl's mother, our principal, returned to school, I headed up a contingent of fourth grade girls who presented her with a clay bisque pot holding African violets. I remember feeling so proud that I was doing something good, trying in my own little way to cheer someone up. I was feeling self-congratulatory, but Emily's mother broke down and I remember feeling ashamed, and I didn't know why. But Emily's mother was carrying around more than her own child's death. She was carrying around guilt, and people started to whisper. Because on the morning of the day of Emily's death, her mother and father had visited a psychiatrist. Emily's dad was a Vietnam vet who had previously been treated for severe depression and manic depression, what I think would probably be called PTSD today. He had been seeing people following him and hearing voices in the TV. That morning, the psychiatrist diagnosed an acute mental breakdown. But instead of hospitalizing Emily's dad or medicating him or even calling a psychologist, the doctor sent the couple home with instructions to rent some movies, hunker down, and spend some time together as a family. People would later claim that Emily's mother was under strict instruction not to leave her husband alone with the children. But upon arriving home, that's exactly what Emily's mother did. She got in the car with Emily's older brother and headed to Blockbuster for the movies her family had been prescribed. When the two arrived back home, less than an hour later, Emily's father was in the road, covered in blood, and, some said, feeding the squirrels. He told the neighbors who'd run from their houses to help that there was a lot of evil in the world, but that Emily was safe because she was with God. At his trial, psychiatrists testified that Emily's father was suffering from acute paranoid psychosis when he killed his daughter, and he was found not guilty by reason of insanity. He would also win a settlement from the psychiatrist who'd ignored the signs and sent a man off to his doom. Emily's mother would never be tried, but she would never be vindicated either, because people always whispered. Later that year, I would see this phenomenon in another shade, when it came to light that my cousin had long been victim to her stepfather's physical and sexual abuse. We found out one night after our basketball team lost yet another game to one of Meriden's six other Catholic schools. Christine's stepfather took her outside and began to beat her and scream at her in front of the other families pouring out of the gym. That night, with Christine taking refuge in a classmate's house, it all came out. I don't really remember her stepfather being punished. Years later, he would be there at the tap practices and rehearsals I'd attend with my parents for my little sister, he with his own little daughter in tow. She was there dancing with the other girls like nothing had happened. And I will never forget that feeling of unease. As a child, I was too young and my parents too speechless to explain why a fox was in the hen house. Christine's mother didn't worry about the fox. She chose Christine's stepfather and Christine was sent to live with her grandparents. When my own mom confronted Christine's mother about this, 
about why she would ever abandon her daughter for her daughter's boogeyman, the woman reminded my mom that she had raised Christine on her own. She didn't want that life for Christine's sister. And in the end, Christine's mother said, I just don't want to be alone anymore. My mother was disgusted. There was something wrong, she said, with mothers who chose themselves over their own children. My father's anger was darker. I'll never forget him mentioning what he'd like to do to Christine's stepfather if he ever got him alone. I know these stories are hard, but I have one more. It's about a girl who was stalked for a year and a half by Clarence, the man I told you raped a little girl in a park a mile from my house. For a year and a half, Clarence would wait for Laura at the bottom of her driveway and follow her as she made the mile walk up East Main Street to her high school, cruising slowly behind her in his maroon sedan. When Laura confessed her fears to her parents, her mother laughed. Laura, she told her, there are some men out there who just like to be nice. And so, despite her fears, Laura's parents made her walk to school every day, sometimes following behind Clarence in their own car while he trailed their daughter. Once a police car even joined the caravan. We had a mini parade, Laura's mother would tell the paper. It was almost a comedy. Somehow, some way, Laura escaped unscathed while Clarence was charged with breach of peace. A few years later, Laura's parents were there to cheer along the state legislature as it signed a bill making Connecticut the 10th state in the country to criminalize stalking. But Laura would tell the New York Times that she was always scared. I'm afraid of the dark, she said, and I still can't walk around that much. I carry a blaster with me, and I look all the time. I'm always looking at all the cars. When it came time for the little girl raped at Falcon Field to testify against Clarence, she was too scared. So the police called in Laura to try to get her to counsel the younger child, to encourage her, to impart in her some kind of bravery. But Laura refused, and Clarence, once again, escaped justice. One of the lessons of this story for me is that there are no neat scripts. It's harder than people think to find a perfect victim or a perfect villain. Doreen is not holy, but for me, she's as close to perfect as it gets. 32 years later, she's still that beautiful, headstrong 12-year-old who was taken away from her family forever, and the villain or villains responsible for her disappearance have never been punished. Back in 1988, private investigator Richard Novia, not to mention the Wallingford police, looked past countless red flags and placed their faith in the word of a man who sucked people into his orbit to try to extinguish them like some sort of handsome dark star. But in the course of doing this work, I've spoken to many with their own rations of blame for what happened to Doreen. For Donna, who let Doreen live with her father. For Doreen's grandmother, Jane, for not being able to protect Doreen and Donna before her. For Lori, Mark's mother, who didn't tie Mark to a chair and scream at him until he admitted what he'd done, or might have done. And for Georgia, who turned to God to pray that possibility away. People are even angry at other women in Mark's orbit, girlfriends he victimized and abused for being with him in the first place, for providing him any little comfort he might have been able to find in them. People want to point their finger at someone. Maybe you do too, and someone is to blame. Listen, I don't have all the answers. I'm not a cop or a folklorist or a therapist. I'm definitely not anyone's judge or jury. Some people say I'm not even a real detective, but I am one thing. I'm a sticky beak. I'm Jessica Fritz of Wire, and this is episode four, Raspberry Season. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children.
guys, I just want to take a minute to thank everyone for all the support. I love that you are following Doreen's story. It is available on all of the platforms. And I have a Facebook page called Sticky Beaks that I would love for you to join. I'm also working on a Patreon page for those of you who want to help me solve this. And I'll discuss the details in the next episode. Please stay tuned at the end of this episode for a real treat from Georgia Lewis. It's another one of her songs she features in this episode. Before Mark was Doreen's father and a key figure in this story, he was making quite the name for himself in his hometown of Bethel and beyond. January 12, 1974, Bethel. Arrested for possession of marijuana and possession of stolen property. February 6, 1974, Bethel. Second degree burglary and third degree larceny. February 20, 1974, Danbury, Larceny 2, 3, and 4. A former Bethel police officer told me that sometime in the 70s, he tried to stop Mark for a minor automobile infraction, and Mark fought him in the street. Mark's crimes caught up to him in a most unspectacular fashion on February 2, 1975, when he robbed a payphone. He served time for that one and was in prison when Donna was getting ready to give birth to Doreen in 1975. While he was in jail, Mark sent letters to Donna, Debbie, and Carol, all professing his heartfelt desire to change and his newfound belief in God. Mark was famous for his letters. He even sent some to his mother, Lori, and his father, George, who were on the brink of divorce. July 2, 1975. Dear Mom and Dad, how are you? Good, I hope. Donna told me Monday when she came to visit that you were getting a divorce. I could not believe it. I don't mind telling you that I cried for a while when I got back to my cell. I just kept saying to myself, I don't believe it. Why? I feel I am indirectly to blame. But listen, both of you love each other too much, and both of you are too smart for that. Besides, my brother and my sister are too young. They won't have a chance. It will affect their school grades as well as their minds, as far as them being stable. I'll say again, you two have made so much together, and I'm positive you can work something out, for it would be a crime not to. Please do, please. Well, that's what I want to say. Please write if you have the time and tell me what's going on. But please don't do it. It will be too much of a loss. It really will be. Bye for now. I love both of you very, very much. Mark. P.S. Say hi to the kids for me. July 25th, 1975. Dear Mom, I received your letter tonight. I'm at Cheshire now, as of July 9th, so I got it late because they had to transfer it from Bridgeport. I'm glad everything is going all right with everyone, as well as could be expected, I suppose, but I can't see Dad living in that two-room whatever it is in Danbury. I'm reading quite a lot here, almost all day and all night I spend reading, all very good self-help books. I've clarified many wrong thoughts, and I learned much about life itself, as far as how to succeed if I want to, and I truly want to, I have to, just by plain acting on every situation in a positive way. I won't say anything about how I've changed because I've changed before, or at least I wanted to, but have really not. Mom, I would like you to understand that as far as I am concerned, I had to marry Donna, mainly because I've never felt so much for any girl as I do for her, and partly because it was in order. This put me into such life as I've never had before, and a feeling that I had been frozen for years and had just been defrosted. But I know I'm going to be successful, because I want to be, and I know now how to be. And as soon as I get out, I'll help as much as I can with everything. About the vitamin C, there's no way they would let me have that. And yes, I could take them if I had them. Donna and I were both taking it every day. 
I bought it every time we ran out, the same brand that you buy, as a matter of fact. I didn't think you would ever write me. I'm very glad you did. Take care. With all my love, Mark. Mark even wrote a letter to the judge to get out of jail and to get home to be with his family. He went back to Doreen and Donna in Ansonia, where he was arrested for threatening and breach of peace on December 2, 1978. I can't be sure, but I think this was the time Mark shot a gun past Donna. To be fair, and I know Mark wants me to be fair, he did tell Aunt Debbie that he caught Donna in bed with another man. Donna didn't care. She was done with Mark Vincent. Mark would move in with his mother, back into the house with Lori's famous garden, where years later she would try to give her son pea pods for Doreen in the hope that he would confess her darkest fear. Back when I started my investigation, I was so frustrated with Lori. Her statement that she was estranged from her son, but not for reasons related to Doreen, and that she thought the police should look elsewhere made me insane. The fact that her obituary in 2007 mentioned three grandchildren, Sarah, Paul, and Mark's son from his third marriage, was maddening. But now I see she was just tired. Because four months after Mark shot at Donna, and maybe for the umpteenth time, Lori was done with Mark too. On March 23, 1979, she wrote her own letter to her second-born son. Here's Lori. Mark. Actually, it is the 24th, as it is 1 a.m. I have not been able to get to sleep because of the wheels turning about you. I shall try to say what I have to say as quickly and clearly as possible. You must move out as soon as you possibly can. It is not fair to your sister or me to have to live with you any longer. You have had more help than the other four kids put together. Daddy and I have tried and tried, but it is to no avail. You have not changed. It is time you were completely on your own, to sink or swim as you see fit. Yes, we have had many nice long chats since you moved back in the house in November, and I thought things were different, but they're not. You are open and honest with people at your own convenience. You are helpful when it suits you. You are warm and loving at times, but the rage inside you that comes out periodically, I can no longer tolerate. Mark, you are a real con artist. You have conned us all at one time or another. You even convinced Anderhagen into thinking you're just fine. Unfortunately, he's never seen the other side of the coin, or he might have been able to help. Perhaps not, though. Maybe he just wasn't as good as we thought he was. In fact, I've heard to that effect recently. At any rate, I firmly believe that your getting out and being on your own is a question of survival, yours and mine. I am writing you instead of telling you, because I cannot bear to get into any more discussions with you, with or without tempers flaring. I hope that you will make every effort to move as soon as possible, but I shall have to set a deadline because I can no longer live with my stomach turned upside down over you. You must have all of your things moved out by the middle of April, the 15th to be exact. That means all, including all tools and seller stuff. If you do not, I shall have to hire some men to move the heavy stuff, as Daddy cannot do any lifting. I am sorry things have come to this point, but they have. I hope you will at least show me the courtesy of respecting this wish. You can make it by yourself, Mark. I do hope you'll really try, whatever the number of years. I don't know where Mark went when Lori kicked him out. I know Lori's best friend, Georgia Lewis, paid him exorbitant fees for his carpentry work, like $100 for a hamper, just so he could keep his head above water. Georgia's friend Pierre told me she wasn't just doing it for Mark, she was doing it for Lori. Pierre told me Mark showed his face around Georgia's house here and there throughout the years. Once, around the year 2000, Mark suddenly showed up and poured his heart out to Georgia at her dining room table. Pierre doesn't know what they spoke about. Georgia made him leave the room. 
I'll admit that sometimes Georgia's unending grace leaves me a bit impatient. Some of you might think Georgia Lewis was a bit of a pushover. I assure you, she was not. Pierre told me Georgia left the music scene because she knew that as a black woman, she was going to have to work four times as hard as the white singers for a quarter of the pay. She made a peaceful, beautiful life for herself in Reading, away from the road on a steep hill that was the neighborhood kid's favorite for sledding. And Georgia protected that property with every fiber of her being. Back in the day, yeah, she, she stood up Frank Sinatra for a date. She knew everybody and everybody knew her. But when she dropped out, she dropped out completely. You know, she made a conscious effort to move to Reading and not tell anyone who she was and what she had done because she wanted them to appreciate who she is for her. And, you know, she's a black woman living in Reading. You know, this is the battle days. Don't forget, a house burned down on that street the year earlier that a black family was going to move in. They burned the house down. And another black family moved in later on. The Washingtons, they moved in at night. And the Robinsons, the other black family, he was a state cop. So he had his all the state cop, you know, buddies helping him move, you know, with their cars. Yeah. (laughs) Did anybody bother her, give her a tough time? But I'm sure, you know. The Klan drove up her driveway a couple times with their guns out and flags waving and uh, we're going to get you. And uh, Cal was a World War II vet and he still had his 45. And so she went into his room and took out uh, his gun and walked out onto a little porch. I think Jay built, it may have been Mark, built a little porch. And uh, and she went out on the porch and fired the gun up in the air. And you want piece of me? Come get me. Oh my God. And they they just backed right there. They didn't even turn around in her driveway. They backed down that hill. And she said the thing almost, she had never fired a gun that big In May 1980, a little more than a year after Lori sent her son packing, Mark's divorce to Donna would be finalized. He had to forgo the life he had made off the backs of Donna's parents, Joe and Jane Murad, for years. Doreen's mother Donna and her aunts Debbie and Carol have worked with me to make a list of every place Mark followed them with baby Doreen in tow, making his home. Carol told me about the time Mark fixed up her grandparents' old house in Ansonia, the one with actual tree trunks instead of beams in the basement. Those years were not good ones. Maybe it was fun in the beginning. Mark used to take his new wife and his little sisters-in-law swimming, and on trips to Huntington State Park, they'd fish and scoop up tadpoles. Here's Carol. He's a controlling, creepy guy. I mean, well, he used to do all fun things. We were kids, so, you know, he had this go-kart, and we went on that, and, I mean, we'd go see, they'd take us swimming, him and Donna, you know? Yeah. We used to go do a lot with them. But that's, you know, they, they were like fun things to do, so of course we wanted to do them, but, you know, things happened during some of the things, you know? Mark's darker side was always there. One day, when he was 19, he took Debbie to the corner store and convinced her to call Carol from a payphone to invite Carol and Carol's new boyfriend, Gary, to join them. When the two 14-year-olds arrived, Mark sucker-punched Gary in the face, and Gary never spoke to Carol again. As the girls got a bit older, Mark would ply them with alcohol, lining up shots until Carol got sick. Donna's mother, Jane, told me Mark thought of Donna as his only real love, his idol. But she also said he was a funny dude. Him as 
cars to get to Rome. I mean, he probably seems like a perfectly saint when you talk to him, but he's far from that. You know, he's got about 10 different personalities, one worse than the other. Mark even chased his own mother-in-law out of the house when she discovered that, as usual, he was up to no good. And he's always done something stupid. You know, I caught him. He was cheating on my daughter. Yeah. And I caught him. I caught him. And, and I was scared of him because and I ran out. And, and it happened on a phone call. I picked up the phone. We had, like, two upstairs and a downstairs phone. And I picked up the phone and I heard him talking to somebody that he shouldn't have been talking to. I listened for a little bit. And he knew I was on the phone. And he came running upstairs and I ran out the door. <laughs> I was scared of him because I knew what he would have done to me. I'm almost positive. I'm sure he would have clobbered me in some way, but I just got out of the house. Wherever he was living, Mark continued to make the blotters. Newtown, July 11, 1980. Third-degree burglary and larceny. Mark rang in New Year's 1981, arrested for assault in Brookfield. He was arrested again for the same charge on June 24, 1981, earning a bonus charge this time for failure to appear. In 1984, after he'd been married to Sharon for two months... He was arrested for second-degree larceny and third-degree burglary and sent to the Connecticut Correctional Institute. How long he was there is unclear, but we know this. Paul was born in March 1985 and Sarah in July 1986. So let's cut to November of 1988, when Mark left Sharon and fled for California to surprise his brother Brad in Brad's driveway. Mark offered to help Brad work on his car and then turned around and asked to be paid for the help. Brad was disgusted. A few days later, Mark blew off his first day on the job, arranged by Brad with one of Brad's contractor friends. All told, Mark lasted a week before Brad kicked him out. To hear Brad tell it, as far as Mark was concerned, that week had just been more of the same. From December 1988 until June 1989, to the Wallingford police and to everyone else, Mark was in the wind. That is, until Teresa Lyons stepped back into Mark's life. Teresa had been Mark's girlfriend on the side back in 1978. She'd met him at the Southbury Training School back when he was still married to Donna, when Doreen was three. Mark even brought Doreen to Teresa's house once. Teresa said the little girl was all dressed up like it was Easter. The summer after Doreen went missing, Mark arrived back in Connecticut without the car he'd driven out to California, the car he'd been waiting in when Brad found him in the driveway. Teresa picked him up at the Greyhound station. I picked him up at the Greyhound bus station. I remember that night like it happened last night. And the reason why I remember it so well is because I had my Crown Vic, and it was a warm, humid night, and I had my AC on and the windows down, which condensed the moisture somehow, which made the smoke come out of my AC vent. And I remember when I picked him up at the bus station, he was freaking out about that shit hitting his face. So I know it was dark, it was night, it was hot, humid, it was warm, the, the AC wasn't blowing out, it had leaks in the hose, he said, he poured some liquid in it, you know what I mean? So I, that's how I associate. But who told you he was in California? His brother. I knew that because I talked to his brother, I mean, I'm going back to 89. I remember where I was sitting in my ex-boyfriend's house, his house downstairs in the basement on his little princess phone. I'm getting ready to move out from this guy's house, and I'm trying to talk to Mark. Wait, you how did he get in touch with you? Okay, I saw it in the paper. I don't believe I was victimized, and, and I'll tell you why, because I knew I was going to be leaving this guy. I was only 28 years old, and sure as shit, I did not want to be alone. You know, I read the paper. I saw his kids miss. I'm like, holy crap. You know, a year later, okay, and I went over it was on a Sunday paper. Back then, you dialed 411 for information. 
but somehow I got the number, Jess. I can't, I can't recall how. I can't, I, you know, I could boggle my brain on that, but I can't. The only, I mean, because we only had 411. You know what I mean? We here's, didn't have. Here's, here's something boggling me. Why would he come back? Why would he come back to Connecticut from t- November 88 till when you picked him up? And what is that, June? June of 89. So when he got thrown out from Roseanne, because that's about when they, he had the little dispute with the burning shit. And he left and went to California. I thought he was only out there for a couple of weeks. I think that's what he told me. He was out visiting on vacation. Mark would move in with Teresa, but their relationship was a rocky one. Despite her constant questions, he never took her up on any offers to look for Doreen. Instead, he berated Teresa about her weight, telling her she needed to do sit-ups. The put-downs didn't end there. Listeners of Faded Out will recall Heed and says she smelled badly and that she needed to see a female gynecologist to deal with what he called her feminine hygiene problem. And the gynecologist told Teresa Mark needed a good psychiatrist. One day, Mark took Teresa's metal detector and her car and went out without her to God knows where. When he came back, he threw the detector at her, telling her it was a piece of shit, but he wanted to show her her car because he'd had Teresa's Crown Vic detailed even the trunk. But Teresa wasn't the only one Mark was spending his nights with. Detective John Ragazzi, who you might recall from Wallingford PD's Happy Hunting memo, showed up to claim Teresa's phone records, hunting for anything related to Doreen. But another number caught Teresa's eye, that of Roseanne Poloni. Teresa already knew a little about the other woman in Mark's life. He taunted Teresa, telling her how Roseanne was beautiful and had a gorgeous body. Now, Teresa called Roseanne to arrange a meeting to discuss the strange situation in which they'd found themselves. In a diner, Roseanne told Teresa about the night the Wallingford police finally found Mark, the night someone called 911 from Roseanne's house on Wallingford's Pond Hill Road to report that Mark had set fire to Roseanne's clothes on the charcoal grill. Teresa told me that that night, in the diner, Roseanne had a thousand eyes in her head. Teresa told me Roseanne was terrified. Mark would tell the police his side of the story in the interrogation room. Here's the transcript. Roseanne Poloni is telling you, well, I have a temper. Yeah, I got a temper. I got a good goddamn right to have a temper. But she's also told you I've never hit her. And I suppose she hasn't told you the things that she's thrown and broke. And the night she told me I wanted to draw blood with the phone after she tried to hit me with the phone. She probably never told you all that. So you take one side of the story and you assume and you assume and assume. After that night, after Roseanne watched her clothes go up in flames, she and Mark were over. Jason Barry of the Record Journal found Roseanne in Wallingford for his article in 2001. She would only speak to him from behind the glass of a closed storm door, and she wanted nothing to do with Mark. Roseanne died in 2014, at 63. Her obituary features Roseanne in a photo that looks like it's from the early 80s. She looks a lot like I imagine Doreen would have looked had she been allowed to grow up and bears a startling resemblance to an age-progressed photo of Doreen. She's wearing a red and black turtleneck and a straw hat, and she's beaming. For a long time, it was hard for me to square that photo with what I thought I knew. For a long time, the only image I had of Roseanne was of a woman watching her clothes burn up, scared in a diner, cowering behind that door. A victim. But when I used that word recently with a family member of Roseanne's, she recoiled. Roseanne was no victim, she told me. No, she wrote, Roseanne was a force. She was eclectic, stunning, wild, smart, so creative. 
She always marched to her own drumbeat. I know Mark burned her clothes, she wrote, probably because he felt threatened. She answered to no one, ever. He didn't like women who were confident and owned their world. When I got that family member on the phone, her memories became even more vivid. Roseanne, the woman said, would don tank tops, skipping the bra and not shaving the hair under her arms. She also wasn't a stranger to burning clothes and was known to burn the clothes of men that she didn't like in her own front yard. She was like a gypsy, the woman said. Like Janis Joplin, I asked. Like Stevie Nicks? Better, the woman told me. The family was impressed. Mark had antique furniture, the relative told me, and was always spending gobs of money on Roseanne, money he said he earned working construction jobs in Greenwich, one of Connecticut's wealthiest towns. The relative remembered Mark showering Roseanne in diamonds. She also remembered that it was Roseanne's son, Kurt, now also gone, who confronted Mark about the burning. She remembers Roseanne flying down the street from her parents' house, where she'd been passing the time. She remembers that the family used to laugh about that chapter in Roseanne's life, joking about the time she had dated a murderer. By then, everyone was tired of Mark. When his father George died in October of 1998, the family held a memorial service to spread his ashes in Huntington State Park. Mark stayed for only a few minutes and then wandered off into the forest alone. Just recently, Tom Hanley, now the Middlebury, Vermont police chief, told Mark's family that the cops once found something in Huntington that Hanley called weird. There, on the forest floor, someone had spelled out the initials DV in little stones. If records of this detail exist in the police department's records, they haven't given them to me. And after years spent wrangling her son and trying to find some peace, Lori died in 2007. Her family gathered at their childhood home in Bethel to go through her things and begin to settle her estate. Mark peeled into the driveway, screaming that he had not been involved and demanding to see Lori's will. She had left him $500. Lori might have known that the money was enough to get her son through another bump in the road, but she also knew that courts are more likely to uphold a will that doesn't have a glaring void, like leaving your second-born son out entirely. Either way, the will was airtight, and Mark's attempts to challenge it in court failed. Because sometimes the right people, the good people, get the last word. In January 2019, members of Mark's family sent a letter to the police. It's long, and it's powerful. Here's a piece. Mark had always been different, straight from the womb. He put our parents through hell. We grew up with Mark and know him to be a con man, a manipulator, a pathological liar, a psychopath, and full of rage. Not one of us doubted that he killed his own daughter 31 years ago, whether by accident or on purpose. We know him to be more than capable of such a thing. We've been waiting all this time for justice. Doreen deserves justice. Our mother's theory about why Mark was the way he was, had basically been fighting an explosive since the day he was born, was that he was born with the umbilical cord wrapped around his throat. He was literally born angry and fighting. Our father had always been full of guilt about how Mark turned out. It was not his fault. He was a good dad, but still he somehow felt at least partially responsible. Maybe parents just do that naturally, blame themselves. They had five kids, four of whom were decent, well-adjusted, law-abiding citizens. Our parents did okay. Still, our father always said, no, there was something I wasn't seeing. There was something he needed that you kids didn't, and I didn't see it. Our poor father blaming himself. Yes, there was something Mark needed all right, an exorcism, because Mark is and was evil. And this from his own family. Our questions are these. 
Why is nothing being done about the fact that Doreen, a sweet little girl, was murdered? Why were you hit in the face with leads not followed? Why is nothing being done now that Jessica and her team have come to the Wallingford Police with a lot of new information? Why is it not being used? Why are you all not working together? Why is this man still walking around and being protected? Why does no one care about justice for Doreen? This story is such a hard one to tell. For me, it's hard not to look back on all the things that I've told you, the stories from my childhood that this drums up, and not look back with a critical eye. No one in them is perfect. I'll always wonder what might have happened if Emily's mother hadn't gone to Blockbuster to rent a movie. What might have happened if that small fragment of time had turned out differently? I'm angry at the priest for telling me I should feel happy for Emily because she was in a better place. I'm angry at my father telling nine-year-old me about the concept of vigilante justice. If you'd been there, maybe you would have cheered him on. I'm angry at my mom for failing to reach out to Christine's mother to help her in some way and choosing instead to judge, even though all these years later, I can't help but think that her judgment might have been right. I'm angry at Laura's mother for brushing off her concerns and her fear, for letting her walk to school every day, for laughing at the caravan of cars parading after a stalker. I celebrate the anti-stalking statute that Laura's family helped pass, but I can't help but get angry that she chose to abandon a little girl suffering the same pain she'd suffered and played a role in her own stalker walking free. But who's the real victim here? And who's the real villain? Clarence and Christine's father are easy ones. But is it harder for Emily or for the people she left behind? What about Emily's father, still in whiting after all of these years, a prisoner to his own illness? Emily's mother is now principal in a new school, passing out an annual scholarship in Emily's name to a girl like the one she imagines her daughter might have grown up to be. I look up Christine and her little sister on social media. They look happy and healthy. Christine's boogeyman is dead. As for Laura, can we ever really judge? As a child, her protectors had failed to protect her. And now, as we as a culture develop a fuller understanding of what it means to be a sexual abuse victim, do we blame a child for not using what we would now consider a burgeoning superpower to help another little girl? So as we move forward and think about Doreen, I say this. Plant your raspberry bushes and forgive people for their sins. Look deeper and ask the right questions before you judge. Remember people's roots might not be as hardy as yours and that they might have had to shape their lives around the worst thing that someone could ever imagine. Practice sympathy, benevolence, and generosity. But while you do, make sure to hang the stalks on your door to keep out unwelcome spirits. Put them on your bewitched horses to keep out the devil because it's raspberry season and Doreen's boogeyman is still out there. Walk with me, Lord. Won't you walk with me? Walk with me, Lord. Lord, 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 I want you to walk with me. Jesus, to 